Hey everyone and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Dirt Podcast. Today we're going to be jumping into episode number 6 and talking about our temperature monitoring and our uh, trout and trout streams that we have here in Howard County. And um, A lot of times when people think about trout streams, I know myself in particular, I think about Northeast Iowa, Southeast Minnesota and kind of into Wisconsin there. Um, and not always people understand or know that Howard County actually has um, a number of trout streams as well. Some known, some unknown, um, but nonetheless it all kind of has a lot of things to do behind the scenes to either A, develop or create a trout stream, or B, get a, a cold water stream sustainable with a certain population of trout and stuff. And so that's kind of why we wanted to, to lump the trout and the, the temperature monitoring together because that is a, a big part of it. And so something that we use um, in our office and work with the Iowa DNR um, we use what they call thermographs um, and these thermographs are basically um, temperature monitors that we're able to put in the stream they're small units um, I would say they're oh, what do you think size of a, a small Pringle I guess you could say um, yeah, about about the size of a quarter in diameter um, not very thick yeah, yeah so they're, they're pretty small units um, we basically put them in a housing of a PVC attach them to uh, a piece of rebar that we've driven into the the stream bed and that way it's not moving and then um, try to find a fairly deep spot so that we know we're going to have water flow um, over it the whole entire time because obviously if it gets out of the water then all of a sudden instead of measuring water temperature we're measuring air temperature um, and so we always need to make sure that we're able to uh, um, create a consistent data data set and make sure that we get the numbers um, right as much as we can and so um, these units are, are pretty awesome. We actually uh, last year went and uh, purchased a bunch ourselves so that we actually have two um, temperature monitors at every site that we have planned right now uh, to hopefully lew out all the errors and, and don't have monitors dying on us or getting buried or whatever it is and so that we hopefully have that consistent data um, over the years so we don't have any lag years and that sort of thing. Um, these monitors are pretty impressive. Um, they basically take a small watch battery and they're able to last throughout the whole uh, whole summer um, when we put them in there. And they take a, a data point or a temperature point every 10 minutes. And so we're keeping a continuation um, of that trout or that uh, water temperature the entire time, um, which is really important because obviously as the, the day warms up, it gets warmer. As the night comes, the water cools. And so that's really important for us to, and that actually gives us a, an aspect how to tell the warm water from the cold water because the cold water streams are going to stay pretty much the same um, throughout the day where you get those warm water streams, a lot of times they have a dark substrate with some sediment or whatever, and those are starting to have those peaks um, through the middle of the day and whatnot. And so um, these temperature monitors are really important um, and they're, they're very small units, but yet they, they pack a pretty good punch and give us a lot of information really, really quick. Um, and so I kind of alluded to why we use them obviously for to hopefully get down the, the time frame and, and get into the trout stream era. Um, basically the, the main point of it is we want to make sure these streams or try to get these streams actually designated cold water streams. And so get them on that actual list, get it in writing. Um, the data that we're finding are showing that a lot of these streams are cold water. It's just a matter of time of getting enough years of data seeing the the different vegetation out there and stuff and so there's actually um, certain parameters that you have to meet to be designated cold water and to be a designated cold water stream you um, from mid-may to mid-september you can't have a maximum temperature over 75 degrees 
uh, Fahrenheit. And so a lot of these streams are well under. And so this is a, um, you need to have that data for three years. Doesn't necessarily have to be consecutive data um, or consecutive years. We have to have three years under normal flow showing that um, that water temperature is under 75 degrees. You can't have any maximum temperatures over 75. Um, and then with another part of that is you have to have a, a certain flow regimen. So you have to have 0.3 cubic feet per second, which doesn't seem like a lot. It isn't a lot. Um, so you have to have a basically, what we would say is a base flow. Um, you have to have some sort of flowing water. Obviously, you got to have water there for the trout. You can't just have um, a dry run here or there, disappearing streams and stuff like that throughout the year. Um, to sustain a healthy trout population. You got to have that, that flowing water um, year-round. Um, some other things to kind of um, take into account is, so there's cold water designations, there's warm water designations, but then within each one of those, there's different classes that they break it down into. And those are basically um, broken down into the interaction of recreation parts of it, fishing capabilities, uh, locations, and that sort of thing. And so, um, for example, I mean, they have, like, as a cold water stream, you maybe have um, your class A1 would be your um, primary contact recreational use is what they call it. And so that's where you're going to have um, direct contact with fishermen, with boating, jet skiing, skiing, um, people swimming, that sort of thing. You're going to have direct contact in the water for long, sustainable times. Um, if you get into that class A2, now you're starting to, they call it a secondary contact recreational use. And so maybe that's your indirect use. You're not in the water as much. Um, there's still fishing capabilities, but not quite as, um, not quite as much as the class A1. Um, and so they have those different kind of breakdowns and we won't go through all of them. Um, but then kind of the other part of it where say there might not be recreational fishing use, um, that gives it another sort of cold water designation. And so that's when you have your cold water aquatic life. They have a type one and they have a type two. And so those are still cold water stream designations, but they're just another breakdown um, per se of what class they are. And so that's just kind of how the DNR can kind of um, specify what kind of stream it is. And I believe, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm gonna assume that this is probably how they um, prioritize as far as um, trout stocking, how often they, they stock it, the promotion of it, um, probably some sort of management, how much money they're going to spend, that sort of thing. And so that probably gives them a pretty good priority uh, priority list as to um, whether it's a high quality cold water stream or a little bit lower quality um, cold water stream down the list and that sort of thing. And so it's a lot kind of like how we um, can classify projects here as far as high priority projects or low priority projects depending on what we're talking about and stuff like that so um, like we say we got to have these um, collect all that data we got to be able to hopefully work down the road of, of getting a designated cold water stream and what that does is then it basically opens the door for a few different things um, the main part of it is it opens the door for us for projects and practices um, that uh if, if they're designated cold water stream, it gives them priority points basically then. Um, and so some of our different stream bank stabilization project pools or pools of money um, will get actual, actual priority points if it's in a designated cold water stream. Um, another kind of sub benefit of that, and we'll talk about it a little bit later, is, and it doesn't necessarily have to be designated cold water, but if we got that data showing that we have those cold water, you can see the um, habitat out there. Um, 
they can then go down the road of putting some trout in. And that's really the ultimate goal on a lot of these streams is, is hopefully getting some trout in there and sustain some healthy populations. Um, and that's what we're doing here in a lot of different stretches. So um, there's a lot of different things that go into um, the temperature monitors and, and putting them in and different things like that. But when we get down to the nitty gritty of it, we're always looking to, uh, to see those temperatures down there in the 60s and, and see that water crest and different macro invertebrates and stuff like that out there, which is just a couple different um, surveys that we do. And I mean, Neil, he's done quite a few of those macro invertebrate studies and they're, they're pretty fun to go on and, and be a part of. When uh, talking about these, uh, putting these monitors in, I think, what do I have, like six in my watershed? Mm -hmm. And how many do you have in the turkey? Eight. Eight. So we're putting out, you know, 14 of these. So what we're doing is we go out and we we drive a steel post into the stream bed. Like Hunter said, we, we try to find those locations that are um, going to have a, a good flow and a, the correct depth of water. Because um, we, we want it to set above the sediment, but yet but below the water. So sometimes that can be kind of tricky. Um, and then these monitors, they go inside a little PVC pipe or a chunk of pipe that we have, and then we bolt that onto the um, to the the steel post. Which um, sometimes when you're trying to put that burr on the nut or the nut on the on the uh, bolt, uh, you got your arm down in that 55, 60 degree water, and um, it can be kind of painful. So you got to be pretty quick with that because the longer it takes you, the harder it's going to be. Your hand gets so cold. Um, so that's usually a good indication that we're going to have some cold water. Um, but usually we're out there, I think we put them out usually in early April and usually pull them out about mid-October. Um, the main thing is, the, like Hunter said, that maintaining that temperature. So whether it's, you know, 60 degree days in May and in October or 80, 90, 100 degree days in August, we compare that air temperature to the water temperature and if we can maintain that um, happy um, trout zone in there. I know the colder the water, for instance, the brook trout like the coldest water. Brown trout can survive in a little bit warmer water. I mean, they'll be all right, but usually it's that coldest water that we're really looking for, um, for the brook trout. Well, and what's really cool about the water temperature too, and I remember when we went out to, to um, I think it was Mullins Creek, we did electrofishing survey out there to see what was kind of um, out there and whatnot. And, Mainly, I mean, we weren't necessarily looking for the trout. We were looking for the prey species more so. And we only found like two species of minnows. I don't remember exactly what they were off the top of my head. And we were kind of like distraught. We're like, man, there's nothing out here. And the, the fisher's like, no, this is a good thing. Being there's only these two species, it indicates that it's a high quality stream and that these two minnows are able to sustain or be able to live in this stream is good and that some of these other mineral species that maybe could get in these lower quality streams, warmer temperature waters um, would then be able to survive. But since we just found those two, that was a really good thing. So we were thinking it was bad. The fisheries were jumping up and down saying it was a good thing. And obviously it leads down to a, a road of success later down the road. But Well, that macroinvertebrate study, and I've talked about before that, uh, that training is called, the acronym is SWIM but uh, it's like a three-day uh, course out in Western Iowa where we actually get into the stream. So one, um, one of the outdoor activities is we go out and we, uh, we've got these little nets and collection boxes. So we're out there, especially you turn the rocks over, you've got all kind of creepy crawlers under there. Um, there's a lot of different insects that have um, a stage of their life is in the water um, as larva and a lot of like the small snails and some of that kind of stuff. 
So that goes into um, a list of, of uh, species. So for finding a lot of those macroinvertebrates, that's another food source for um, not only the trout, but the minnows that the trout might feed upon. Um, so when we have that listing, we um, that's all categorized too, as far as the quality, it, it gets a number rating too. So, um, and we'll do that. Um, it's kind of like when we do the fish shocking, we'll do uh, segments. I can't remember if we do a full 500 foot segment, but we, when we're doing the fish shocking, we'll do typically three uh, segments of 500 feet and, and they can be consecutive, but um, each of those 500 feet, we're doing a count. Um, and it's kind of similar, like with the macroinvertebrate study, um, we're going in there. So that's where um, a lot of the stream condition and, and um, we'll, we'll do that with the rascal assessment where we're actually looking more at the physical attributes of the stream. But the macroinvertebrates, um, the, uh, the different species and things. Um, but, oh, I was gonna say the, uh, the condition of the stream, if we've got a lot of sediment in the base bottom of the stream, it's really difficult for a lot of these uh, creatures to live. Like speaking of the couple um, um, minnows that we had in that one, if, if, if you've got an embedded uh, sediment-ridden substrate on here, you're not going to be able to have those creatures growing on the rocks and things like that. And you're not going to have the species of, of aquatic um, vegetation where a lot of this stuff um, lives too. Because it's kind of fun, you take um, some of the, you take one of these nets and you like stick it right under some of these overhangs of, of uh, grass and kind of shake it up and you lift it up and you find all these interesting little things. and. We're actually, you get right down to, you can have a microscope, like a little eyeglass to look at some of these things. They're, some of them are pretty small, some are bigger, um, but it's uh, it's kind of like a, it's like kind of like a, a little game. You go out there and you've got all these different species and you're trying to identify them by how many legs they have or, um, you know, the body shape, color, um, just how they, they, they act. Right, they've got these little whirly, whirly jig bugs that like spin around and stuff. I mean, so it's kind of fun. I know when we're having that class, everyone wants to like find this um, species of bug that nobody found that day. Um, usually somebody comes up with it. So that, that's kind of interesting. But yeah, so we've we've gone through and in, in, uh, especially in Silver Creek, Minor Creek and Mullen Creek, the sub watersheds of, of my watershed project, we've done that macroinvertebrate study and that that helped what we'll talk about a little bit later is uh, the reintroduction of brook trout. But uh, some of those parameters that we're, we're checking and um, just the condition of the stream. So the more stuff we find out there, the higher quality it is. And what's really cool is when you kind of put the whole picture together and, and talk about like real life, I mean, those trout fishermen out there, and specifically fly fishermen, I mean, those guys really hone in on those macro invertebrate and the bugs in the stream because that's what they're using to catch them with. They're using those small flies and there's different bugs or fly, I mean, whatever. I don't even know the mm -hmm. whole spectrum of, of lures or whatever you could call them or flies. But those guys are getting down to the nitty-gritty. There's certain ones they use at certain times. And if Sam Franzen was still here, um, we'd get him on here because he was an avid fly fisherman. And he could go out there almost every night and catch a couple nice, really pretty brook trout, brown trout, whatever it may be. Um, but they really dialed in exactly what they were using based on what the trout were eating. And it's just like anything else if you're a fisherman. is You get out there, you start to catch some fish. A lot of times they'll regurgitate what they've been eating. And you can see right there what they're eating. You can find the color, you can find the shape, you can find the size. And you kind of match it up, especially guys who pull like plugs or rapalas, whatever it is. They, they can pretty much match it to exactly what those fish are eating. And boom, they're on it right then and there. And... 
Um, it's the same exact deal with the, the macroinvertebrates. Those macroinvertebrates that we're finding, they're larger vertebrates, that's why it's macro. And then they're able to match it to what these flies or lures look like, and that's how they're able to then go out and catch these fish, which is really cool seeing it kind of whole picture go around. I mean, we're using it for the surveying and the, the data part of it, and then these fishermen are using it for real life to go catch the fish and stuff like that. So it's really pretty cool how they all kind of tie it together then in the end. But You know, on one of our previous episodes when we were talking about our watershed projects, you know, Silver Creek, um, you know, obviously our, our impairment was bacteria, so we were like working on that. We weren't really thinking about the fisheries and stuff, but um, the individual that uh, used to work at the Decor Fisheries, Bill Kalishik, um, he was um, he was an amazing, amazing guy. And his uh, uh, looking to the future and just seeing what we were doing with the stream, and he remembered the history of the stream and how there had been trout in there, and they had at, actually used it. I, I believe they would like release trout, and then they'd have school children come out and do some fishing and stuff. So he kind of brought that up. And uh, another individual that lived in our community was Fran Liebert. And he was very active in the uh, wildlife club and um, Trout Unlimited and things like that. And uh, he, he was really, uh, he's no longer with us, but man, he was really um, someone that I looked up to as far as like the advice on the, the trout stream and things. So he got me excited and, and then of course Bill did too. So that's why we started setting these temperature monitors and we kind of strategically located them around the watershed so that, um, so that we were like, catching those main branches just to document that. And like I said, Mullen Creek, we knew it was going to be cold. Silver Creek's main branch and then uh, Minor Creek, which comes in out of the, the north branch into um, Silver Creek. But um, uh, I remember we had to relocate uh, after the first year we set um, a couple monitors. And like Hunter was saying, you want to make sure that you maintain that water level. Well, Silver Creek is what we consider a, a um, a disappearing stream. So we'll back up one minute. The reason we've got these uh, streams in Northeast Iowa is because we are in that driftless re region where we've got a lot of karst to topography, um, a lot of spring spring water. That's where our cold water comes from is the springs. So that's that's the unique part of Northeast Iowa that we have these streams. So um, so we, we, we strategically place these, but um, the one spot we happen to have uh, it dried up and like Hunter said, you come back and there's it's sitting in dry ground. You, you look at your readings, you know exactly when the water level dropped because um, all of a sudden you're going from 55, 60, 65 degrees to 87 degrees. And we know that that's the end of that. Um, also, the other kind of funny thing is um, if we're ever wondering what the date is that we pull the monitors out, and then once we pull them out, we usually bring them in the office. And they're usually 72 degrees that day. So um, if we forgot what day we pulled them out, we'll, we're pretty sure knowing when we, when we get them back in. And then as far as pulling them out, it, it was kind of a funny story here. Two or three years ago, um, you know, sometimes you can have too much of a good thing. So we had set this, and I was always kind of worried because that you know we were looking for that optimum spot, and we. We were usually back by this tree, but that kind of silted in and that wasn't really a good spot anymore. Because we also like to kind of have it um, tether them to something, whether it's another post up on the bank or a tree or a fence or something like that. So anyway, we moved it down, thought, oh, wow, this is a great little stretch. It's kind of narrow and, you know, good 12 inches, 18 inches deep. And lo and behold, we come back to pull out our monitor and the beavers had moved in, built this huge dam. Now we can just see the tip of our fence post. Hunter's going out there trying to reach it. He's getting right to the top of his waders. And, and we're like, oh man, what are we going to do? So we ran back to town, went to the hardware store 
and got a, uh, a pick pickaxe and thinking we we're just going to demolish this beaver dam. And man, I don't know what, what school they went to and what architectural school or engineering school they go to, but man, they know how to build dams. And uh, we just, it was just like scratching on a hard surface trying to get a, just, we just gnawed through a little area to just, we just wanted to lower it, lower it enough so we could reach down to grab it. So it was on a Friday. So we got it. We, we cut down on that uh, beaver dam and man, did we upset the beavers because they went to town that weekend. We came back on Monday and they had built it even bigger and taller than what was before. So um, we eventually were able to latch onto the post and just pull it out with a, a four wheeler. But uh, anyway, so we had a little bit too much of a good thing that, that time. But uh, like Hunter said, we want to keep that. We want to make sure that we're getting that full season of data. And so location, 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 we want to make sure that we're putting those in good spots and marking them well too, because, um, you know, over from the time of the spring, when we set them out to the, during summer to the fall, we come back and things grow up and different stuff like that. So we usually mark them pretty good. So once in a while, people see these posts out there. Now we've, we've got a lath, we've got orange paint and flags and, and ribbon and stuff. So that's primarily what we're doing. Another funny story is, uh, as far as tethering things to things, um, north of town, I thought, well, this is great. I'm going to put it right on this bridge and, and hook it to this bridge piling. So we had a chain and stuff on it. And uh, I, I did not realize that I came back later that, that summer I was man, uh, water sampling. Here the, the county was putting a new bridge and pulled the bridge out. There went my temperature monitor and everything. So I'm over here on the pile of, of debris trying to find my temperature monitor and everything. It was a lost cause. It was gone. So, um, so yeah, so sometimes it, uh, we have a fail, but um, sometimes it's location or the wildlife helps us out or uh, some, some uh, building crew comes along and kind of changes their plans. So usually it works out great though. Yeah, Neil was talking about the location, location, location. Um, I'll kind of just jump right into my watershed project as far as how we decided where we were going to put them, how many we needed and that sort of thing. And really what we jumped in on is we wanted to make sure we had a monitor, at least one monitor in each tributary, each branch. Um, of that watershed area and so that's how we really dove in and figured out what we had so um, I'll just go right down them. I'll give you some numbers here and then we can kind of talk about them but um, so Cardinal Creek which is a tributary um, that comes in actually from the Winnesheek side um, into um, what then would be the main branch of the Turkey River just north of Cardinal Marsh there um, it's a very very small stream the, the the spring actually comes out of the side of a hill um, and that's an area where you never would think that would keep water flowing through the summer because when we come in the spring, there's maybe maybe six to eight inches if, it, if you're lucky. Um, but what's crazy is that spring is constantly flowing all year round, whether we've gotten rain or not. And so we always keep that flow throughout the year. And um, so far, we've only had our monitors out in the Turkey River for two years. This year will be year number three, which we haven't quite pulled them yet um, any day now. But anyways, for our two-year average there, it's 52 degrees, and so that's staying extremely cold. Obviously, we're really close to the source of the spring. Um, that's keeping those temperatures down. Uh, Cheehawk Creek, which is another smaller tributary um, that flows into the main branch of the Turkey, actually just west of where Cardinal Creek is, um, is right about 55 degrees on average. And so that one's pretty dang cold, too. Um, that's actually one of our streams that we found um, quite a few brown trout in and even a brook trout. Um, doing our electro fishing out there. Stone Creek is is another small tributary that kind of comes off. Um, there's about seven springs that start in a, in a pasture area 
the actually was what the Vernon Springs area or Vernon Springs town was kind of named after um, that basically starts the stream as well as some stormwater that comes off from uh, the city of Cresco. Um, and that's kind of one of our, our new showcase streams, I guess we could call it as far as um, holding trout and stuff like that. And that actually flows in just above the Arch Rapids. Um, if, we, if you are familiar with the Mill Pond or Vernon area, um, it flows in right above there, right kind of next to where the, the golf course is. And, and that sits right about that 54 degree um, on average too. And so some really, really cold stretches right there. Obviously, they're really close to the source of the springs, which helps. Um, but nonetheless, those are some kind of our high priority areas that we're going to look as far as getting them designated cold water and hopefully see some trout reproduction and, and possibly brook trout reintroduction or introduction here um, in the future. The other kind of four spots uh, or three spots that we've we kind of targeted were the actual main branches of the Turkey River. So like the North Branch, the West Branch, the South Branch. And those all kind of eventually come together into the main branch of the Turkey River that most people are familiar with. Um, these stretches all have similar kind of characteristics. Um, they do have some springs that show up here and there, um, but for the most part, these are probably going to be warm water segments. Um, on average, we found um, that they're sitting right around that 65 to 70 degree range on average, um, which would mean that the maximum temperature throughout those summer months definitely got over the 75 degrees. Um, that 75 degree mark at times, but there is some areas in there that you can see where the water crust is and different things like that. So in the future, it could be um, possible where we could maybe see some brown trout or rainbow trout in there. Um, probably not brook trout, just not quite cold enough, um, but still some pretty nice stretches in there and, and they possess some really good um, uh, habitat and, and characteristics for game fish. Um, we don't always have to get caught up on the trout aspect and stuff but um, some of these smaller tributaries that previously hadn't seen um, game fish in them we're starting to see especially like the smallmouth bass we're starting to see work up into these tributaries and start uh, spawning and that sort of thing and so that's really cool to see them um, coming back from the main branches find these little sanctuaries that um, people n don't normally think or would think that there'd be fish in and seeing these uh, populations of smallmouth bass is, is pretty cool um, as far as numbers um, and cold water and that sort of thing, it's really fun to talk about, but the, the, more, uh, the more exciting topic would be the electro fishing um, and actually getting in the streams and, and seeing what kind of fish or what kind of minnows we actually have in there. And um, We've mainly done it just on Cheok and Stone Creek. Um, and so we've done kind of three kind of main shockings in 2018, 2020. Now um, we just did another one here in 2022 at the University of Iowa. Um, but we found um, a lot of brown trout um, in both Stone Creek and Cheok Creek. Um, actually in 2020 when we were in Cheok, um, we were kind of on the, the mission to see if there was any brook trout in there. Back in 2018 we had found one, um, but we were kind of back on that mission to see if we could find any more or if there was in there. And we came back, found buckets and buckets of brown trout and still found the elusive one brook trout. We should have checked the measurement and see how much he grew in those two years. I don't know. I don't, I don't doubt it was the same one, but um, I kind of think I would, I'm think I'm going to name him Charlie. Yeah, you know. it's kind of funny. But, yeah, that electrofishing is an absolute blast. I mean, um, we had Doug Houghton up here from Missouri um, this spring. He kind of did a, a little news uh, magazine article for us on the furrow. And uh, he actually, I can't remember if it was him or one of his friends, actually has the patent 
to the electro fishing backpack units. And so it's pretty cool. It basically just hooks up to a small voltage battery. Um, you basically test the, the conductiveness and different parameters in the stream, which then you know how to set your backpack shocker so that you're obviously not hurting the fish. Um, what it does is basically it tracks them to the wand that you're using, um, and then you're able to scoop them up. Um, like Neil talked about, we do shorter segments so that you can fill buckets and stuff like that as you go. And then after that 500 foot, take the weight the and the measurements and the length and stuff like that, and then release them um, right there without uh, affecting the, the fish at all or hurting them. Um, and so it's a really good and effective way to, to sample as far as number of fish, species of fish, and then even like with Neil's project, and he'll probably talk about is is the genetics of them too. Um, and so that was really important with them with the, the brook trout part of it is, is seeing the genetics and seeing how that's changed in different generations and whatnot. But that electro fishing is, is really important to us to get actually in the stream and see what we actually got in there. So it kind of gives us that baseline um, data as far as previous knowing what we had in there. Um, if this were to, to work itself down the road as far as introducing some brook trout in the Turkey River area. I mean, it's. I always look forward to when I hear that they're going to be coming to do that. I'm like, oh, wow, that's going to be great. And then we try to round up a few other people. Honestly, um, I remember doing a uh, tour with Dale Denler's class um, in the spring. It was probably, I forget what, probably back in 2016, maybe, or 15. We were, I had a tour, and I know, I remember Hunter was in that class. And I remember at the end of the class, I said, hey, we're going to be doing a, a fish shocking and uh, invited Dale Denler and his, any of his students that wanted to participate in that. So Bill Kalishik lined it up and we came out and we were, we our mission was to sample three, three 500 foot stretches in Mullen Creek, Silver Creek and uh, Minor Creek. And so uh, lo and behold here, we showed up and usually Bill brings his, um, uh, Teresa Shea also works at the fisheries uh, over there in Decor, so she came along. So Dale came and there was probably, I don't know, five or six, six, seven um, high school students came with Dale. And, uh, you know, we spent the, that morning um, for noon. I think we ran probably from nine until noon or so. Anyway, uh, we only got through two segments uh, or two, two streams, three sets of segments. So we had to come back another day. So I said, hey, if anybody wants to come back, um, you're more than welcome to. I know you guys had to give up classes and stuff like that. So. Um, so the next week we had scheduled, here comes Hunter and Telesti, uh, 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 she came along too. And I said, wow, that's pretty impressive. They actually came back to, uh, to, to enjoy um, doing this. And, and I, it, it just showed to me that they had a lot of interest in, in our habitat and outdoor stuff. So that was kind of the first time I kind of put, kind of put a peg on Hunter as being someone that I think would be a good fit with what we do here. But, uh, but anyway, um, you know, it's not just the trout we're looking for. It's like we were saying earlier, it's all the species, the minnows. And, you know, that's one thing. It's like you used to stand on a bridge and you look inside and you'll see all these little tiny minnows flying. I'm like, minnow is a minnow. It's like, oh, no. You, you would not believe how many different species of minnows there are. What blows my mind is watching uh, Teresa and, and Bill and, and uh, Mike and them guys uh, identify these. I mean, they get right down to like a little shading under their gill patch. I mean, it's it's funny. There's there's one that's called a, a stickleback, and it honestly looks like a little walleye. It's just the coolest little fish. Um, then there's that one. It's almost like a really colorful one that they really rainbow darter. Rainbow darter. Oh my gosh, that is like it looks like a little tropical fish. You'd think we got something 
pulled out of the um, when you're down at the Cayman Islands or something, just mm -hmm. gorgeous. And it's actually something that the trout really like. It, it's an indicator species of really high quality, high quality water. So, um, you know, we get excited when we see a trout, but um, these uh, people that are really into the fisheries, um, they get excited about some of these um, individual species of, of, of minnows. Um, and then also back to the macroinvertebrate studies, that's another thing we did. Um, Jackie Gouch, um, I mean, Iowa DNR, they are uh, definitely an amazing partner with us on our, our watershed projects, especially the stream aspect of what we're doing. Um, they appreciate what we're doing on the uplands, so that helps out the streams. But Jackie came up and we did that macroinvertebrate study. And um, I know, Hunter, that was probably one of your first years that you were with us that summer. And uh, so that's always fun, too. Um, but what I would like to do is we have the documentation of that back when we did it, probably back in 2016, 17. I'd like to compare that to where what we are, where we're at today and what the improvements and things we've done in the stream. So that would be an interesting, you know, we kind of got the benchmark set for that initial time we did it. And now to go back, because honestly, you stand, and I'm I'm always, we're, we go out in a water sample and I pull the water sample and then Hunter's busy with all the different uh, tests and stuff. So I go back and I'm, he's probably wondering, what are you doing over there? I'm just looking in the stream. It's just fun to see all that different um, vegetation um, and just to see the the structure of the stream and how it's evolved and changed um, from, you know, not in a pretty quick amount of time. 13 years is when Silver Creek um, was first uh, project began um, and seeing some of the improvements that we've got now. And honestly, that was a big part of uh, Silver Creek and the reintroduction of brook trout was uh, these brook trout were over in uh, Pine Creek in Winnesha County, and it's the only native trout to Northeast Iowa. So, you know, we always hear about these unfortunate fish kills and different things that things can happen. Well, when you got a, a, a rare species of trout um, and they're only in one stream, that's what you kind of worry about, hey, what could happen? Um, so that one summer they were looking for probably 13, 14 other cold water streams that, you know, had to be somewhat high quality. And because we had gathered all this data, um, we qualified for receiving some of these trout. So, um, so they, uh, they brought um, that first year, um, it was in, I believe it was in 2017, they brought 700 fingerlings. And uh, at that time, most of the information we had was on Mullen Creek as far as history of trout. Um, and, and we had just started the temperature monitoring um, stuff. So, but we, we knew for sure that Mullen Creek had. So we, we dropped these um, 700 trout. We divided them up in, by pails. It's kind of fun to, when that comes to that's, that's about as, ex I don't know what's more exciting, the day we spend the electric fishing or dropping uh, fingerlings. It, it always reminds me of when you see when um, they go out and they collect these little baby turtles and they like release the sea turtles. It's kind of like that. Um, I, I'm assuming that would be the same feeling you get. So, um, but anyway, we released them in uh, two or three different locations on um, the Yurok property over here on Mullen Creek. So that was pretty exciting. So that was like in May of 2017. So we actually came back. They, the deficiencies wanted to see, well, how are they doing? You know, and I'm like, wow, we had dropped them. And then we had a couple flood events. And I'm like, man, did they all get flushed into the upper Iowa? And uh, which is kind of, that's a whole amazing thing too, is just how fish hang out in some of these high water events. So, but, uh, so they came back in 2000, I would believe it'd be like the end of March of 2018. And um, I think you were, were you, you came back too. I think you were at 
college yet? I think no, you might have not been. Oh, anyway, um, nineteen. Okay, so then, well, this was the first time we did. We came back. You may not have been there. Maybe it was maybe. Well, anyway, we do this so much. I sometimes the years just kind of fly by. But anyway, um, we came back, and it was in March. And here are these little um, fingerlings, which are usually, I'd say, what, two and a half inches or so, and about the size of your pinky. And um, just kind of wondering, I'm like, I'm kind of sweating. I'm like, gosh, are there any left? Did the, you know, did the herons eat them all or, or something like that? And lo and behold, here we were finding these brook trout, and they had grown to, you know, six to eight inches, and uh, which impressed our fisheries people too, because um, you know, obviously they're not going to keep dumping fingerlings into a stream where they're not surviving. And uh, so um, they were, had done so well, they put us on schedule again to receive fingerlings that spring. So this time they, they increased it. I think we got, um, we got 700 the first time. I think we got like 1800 or so the next, the next, that next um, May or June. And so then we released those again. And part of the reason that they keep bringing back uh, the, the fingerlings year after year is because when they collect these eggs up from the fish in uh, Pine Creek, I mean, obviously you're only collecting so many females collecting their eggs. They go down to Manchester, raise them up to the fingerling size to drop them. So if they do that multiple years, they're getting a, a, a wider, a deeper a genetic pool of fish. So then they bring those back. So then those can like cross with the ones that we have already. So that's, that's part of their um, uh, process for restocking, uh, reintroducing these trout too, is to get a deep enough uh, genetic pool. Um, so anyway, they did well. Then the next year um, was uh, 2019. We had uh, Brett Kelly came up. He was doing a study at Iowa State University getting his master's in honestly trout uh, uh, migration within the streams. And uh, so we came out and we... We were doing, I think we did at least three different different locations on Silver Creek. So the last se section we did, we went back to Mullen Creek and uh, it was in August, you know, how the grass is deep and and uh, it, it, that the Mullen Creek is so neat because it's it's a very narrow but deep channel. But so then the grasses are up here. So we're kind of like about this level when we're walking. A, I'll put a picture if you're able to watch this, actually watch the <laughs> video of it. Um, I'll put actually a picture of what we had to go through, and that was one of those years when that wild cucumber was just oh, that was outrageous. wild. So and some of the, the first two people going through were the the trailblazers opened it up, and, yeah. and the next three, four, five, six guys behind us, camera, how many we had, were basically sitting there with the nets in the ground, hoping they could catch a few. Well, with those electric fishers, you've obviously got the individual with the backpack and the wand that is in the water. And um, they also have a, a kind of like a tail. It's kind of like the grounding system. And uh, I know <laughs> when Teresa, uh, she's like, don't step on my tail. And undoubtedly, sometimes I'm not paying attention. I step on it and they're, they're about to go backwards. But anyway, um, so then you usually have a couple people with nets and then someone following behind with a pail. So then we, we collect the fish and put them in the pail. Um, and also I want to say too that that electric fishing doesn't hurt the fish. All it does is... Um, lightly stun them, stuns them long enough so that we can grab them with our net. And honestly, some of those fish are pretty fast because, man, you you miss your one opportunity to grab them, and they're just like, boom, right past you. Um, so anyway, um, we did that uh, shocking. Here we found a fingerling. 
Well, we didn't release any in that spring of 2019, and here we're in August, and here we have a fingling. So that was our documentation that they are actually naturally reproducing. So that was pretty exciting. Um, we've got a picture of that, and uh, um, I've used that on a lot of brochures and, and uh, posters and things like that. So that that's a lot of fun. But anyway, so that's kind of how the the uh, uh, reintroduction of trout happened in, in Silver Creek. So then, then after that, 2008, back in 2020 and 2021, they came back in that 2021, they brought like over 3,000 that year. And then we split it up and we've actually put some in the main branch of Silver Creek and again in Mullen Creek. But we were also seeing how they were migrating because when we were, you know, we started, we just started in Mullins Creek. So these little fish, they had to like grow and drive, drive, swim all the way down to where that junction was over on uh, Highway 139, uh, east of town swim back up Silver Creek main branch and they got all the way up, uh, you know, northwest of Cresco. So they had, I mean, they had booked, you know, a good seven, eight miles mm -hmm. and uh, they were just, you know, doing very well. So that was something Brett was really impressed with too. He's like, well, these fish, they had to have come from that first stocking because of the size and the weights and things we were having. So that was pretty cool to just see how that was. And then they did uh, bring another um, I think about 2000 and 2021. Um, we didn't receive any this year, but I think just with the numbers and how they're doing, um, I think we're probably do well, we did do, like Hunter said, when we had the, the furrows, uh, magazine individual came up, we, we did just a small segment there on Silver Creek and they were doing very well. I know, uh, it was at first I was like, oh man, we're, it's like taking a kid to the doctor when they're sick and they don't have any symptoms. It was like, we're getting in the stream, not getting any fish, but we were, I was standing up and you could just see the fish. They were kind of right ahead of Hunter and Teresa. And, and uh, once we got to a deep pool, they just started pulling them out. And uh, I know the editor from the magazine was pretty excited. So we got some really nice pictures for that too. Mm -hmm. And what was cool about that is we found all age classes. I mean, um, they, they spawn in the fall, and so we had found a little bit larger than fingerlings. I figured you could call them year one or, or first year fish that we found that were a little bit bigger than the fingerlings. And then you found fish that were six, eight inches, and then we found a couple that were over 10 inches. And so we really found probably anywhere from three to four, maybe five ages, um, year classes of fish. And so that's really cool to start to see that these are all starting to reproduce. They're increasing that genetic population. Um, and, the, and they're really obviously thriving in these high quality streams. So, and they're a beautiful fish. I mean, we only have them out of the water long enough to get their measurement and their weight. Um, but you know, we always want to have a little photo opportunity with them. So you're kind of holding them in your hand and, um, they're just a gorgeous fish. I mean, the coloring, um, I'm sure during the year season, they kind of change color a bit too, but, um, between spawning and regular season, but they're, they're a gorgeous fish. And uh, it's just kind of fun. But yeah, our whole electro fishing, I mean, <laughs> it almost makes you want to not have to go back with a hook and, and a piece of cheese to try to catch these when it's so easy to do that. But obviously that uh, isn't how it works. But mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, when we start to really dive in, I mean, obviously the, the building blocks and the main starting point of all this is getting our temperature monitors in and, and doing our water quality monitoring and all that kind of stuff to really see what we got for the numbers, documenting the good, the bad, the indifferent showing that we either can or cannot sustain these healthy trout populations and then which eventually leads into getting trout in these streams and, and really taking off from there. And so it's really a multi-step 
um, process that we got to get to um, before we can put those trout in our hands and, and show them off to the landowners because ultimately it's always easy to talk about numbers and, and talk to your blue in the face and bore people with all the data and whatnot but when you can actually hold that fish in your hand and, and show uh, landowners and, and farmers and stuff like that that that's what they have on their property that's pretty cool I mean it like I said it's easy to talk about the numbers but when you can show the fish that indicates there's high quality streams and high quality practices going on um, around the watershed area um, so then like our monitoring um, we you know obviously like we've talked we've talked about that before well we'll briefly but we'll probably do a whole episode on all the different things we test for in, in the stream but um, so in Soda Creek, obviously, we had been doing, um, DNR had been uh, water sampling in these streams for years. Obviously, that's how they found the impairment of bacteria in Soda Creek. But since 2000, I would say probably in 2012 is when we got the planning grant. We probably began our water monitoring in 11. So we've been uh, monitoring for the different uh, parameters like phosphates, nitrates, and all that kind of stuff um, for you know, 12, 13 years plus. Um, so, but these temperature monitors, um, Bill Kleschik, we got going on those um, nine years ago. So, um, uh, Hunter, I know he's, he's checking on temperatures. So that nine-year average of temperature, Silver Creek was 60 degrees, Minor Creek 62, Mullen Creek 56. So obviously, these are cold water streams. Mullen is, is the coldest just because I think of the um, geography of that and how narrow and deep it is. But uh, but that those are awesome numbers and and you know Hunter's got these main even his main branch I mean I'm kind of impressed at 70 degrees that's pretty good um, 60s and 50s so um, you know that that's kind of neat and not only that I one one of the when we're doing that rascal you know we usually do it in August I mean some people like say do it earlier or later um, I like doing it in the summer because I like we walk in the stream so we're like walking in the water so we want to be on nice warm days but. Man, you can really tell when you get a stretch that is a cold water stream. I mean, it 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 makes a huge difference. And um, I know we were doing uh, the North Branch, and where we we jumped in, and we're like, oh wow, this is like holy, this is way different. It's like 85 degrees out, and we're walking through, and it's like 56 degree temperature water. So um, it uh, keeps us moving, that's for sure. But it's it's very it's very noticeable um, where those really cool water stretches are. And I'm trying to remember back. We were at a conference somewhere listening to a presentation. I'm almost positive Tom Eisenhardt from Iowa State um, was talking about, and I'm not sure if it was, they were trying to debate whether you can turn a warm water stream into a cold water stream based on best management practices, cleaning the, the stream out, getting that cobble, that sort of thing, or if they actually did it. I can't remember. Obviously, it's a big difference whether they, they actually well, did it or could yeah. they do it. So part of that, and Hunter alluded to that about um, that sediment in the bottom of the stream, because there's been debate. I mean, I've been doing this for 20 plus years, but there's like, oh, trees keep the temperature of the water cool because uh, it shades it. Well, honestly, like we've talked about um, these trout streams and prairie, I mean, obviously there's grass. But a big part of it is having that substrate free of sediment because obviously uh, sediment is a dark color. When you get the radiation from the sunlight goes in there, it will actually heat that water up. And also widening of a stream. If, if it's become eroded so much that it's widened out and shallowed up, you got more exposure to the sun. So honestly, by keeping that stream uh, a little narrower, 
free of sediment is a one way of keeping those temperatures down. And it would be kind of interesting to go back and see on those temperatures to see if it's changed, if it's become cooler or what it does. Because honestly, with all the buffers and, and all the work that the landowners have done in the watershed, you know, doing the cover crops and, and uh, reduced tillage and grass waterways, we're reducing that amount. And the stream bank uh, re uh, restorations that we're doing has reduced that amount of sediment and it's very noticeable now. And it'd be interesting to see that if our average temperature has been cooling down, because I honestly, I think it probably would. Your average, I would almost say maybe not, only because it's already so cold and it would True. be really hard to draw the conclusion whether or not it's actually been dropping compared to where air temps and stuff mm -hmm. were. We're like in the Turkey River, you got some temps that are in the 70s, high 60s and that sort of thing. Might be a little bit easier to tell over mm -hmm. time. Yeah, I mean, once you've gotten to a certain temperature, it's not—it's pretty hard to get any yeah. colder. But it's also neat is in the winter time, just like a cold water stream in the summer stays cool. In the winter, it keeps from freezing. So a lot of these cool cold water streams, that water is uh, from the springs coming out of the side hill, and that um, and that water temperature is going to be—you know—obviously it's going to probably be colder than fifty-six when it's twenty below zero out, but. Um, a lot of times we'll go out there and you'll see there'll be open places and that what's really neat is that watercress and some of that stuff is green and growing because mm -hmm. it's not freezing. It's, it's staying above 32 degrees. So, um, so that's pretty, that's really yeah. cool too. I, I took a quick peek. We did have some monitors that they were doing a special study as far as using satellites and infrared trying to measure the water temperature and how accurate they were and stuff like that. And so we actually kept some monitors in certain streams um, over winter. And a lot of those averages on the cold water streams were around that 35 to 40 degree range um, into in the winter. So obviously most of the time it was going to be warmer than what the air temperature was, which mm -hmm. is what keeps it from not freezing. Um, but we did have a couple of those stretches that froze solid through yeah. and um, monitors got frozen a block yeah. of ice. I forgot about that. We did that probably two, three years ago. It's mm -hmm. kind of like the reverse of what we do in the summertime. Yeah. So, yep. Awesome. Well, we're winding down here. I got a couple questions. We're going to test and see how smart Neil Schaefer is. He thinks he's pretty smart. I know he's a pretty smart guy, but I always say he's the smartest dumb guy I know. So we'll see. I got a lot of trivia in my head. I would probably do pretty well in trivial Jeopardy or something like that. It's probably useless knowledge. but Well, we'll see how useless knowledge this is. So I got two questions for him. The first one is, it's kind of a two-part answer, but I'll just let, you can just take a one stab at it, give me a number, see what you think, but how many streams are the Iowa DNR working to sustain native brook trout? I think it's probably in that 14 to 15. He's close. The actual number is 19. Oh, wow. That's and I said it's a two-part because there's nine streams that previously before this project had populations of brook trout, whether they were naturally there or they had already put them there. Mm -hmm. And there's actually 10 streams that they're starting out completely fresh putting these brook trout in. Silver Excellent. Creek and Mullen Creek okay. um, technically being those brand new ones. Um, so 19 total streams in Iowa that the Iowa DNR is working to sustain native brook trout populations. Excellent. Second question is how many fishable, and this is actually documented on the DNR website. Obviously there's probably more undocumented ones, but how many fishable trout streams are there in Iowa? Well, this is one thing I wanted to bring this up. Here um, comes the politician is, answer. Hey, no, I'm I am ragging up our our farmers and our, our fisheries in Iowa. Is that you know years ago? I mean, we had a very few number of trout streams in Iowa, 
and they have been just on the steady incline as far as uh, the work that's been done on the streams, further documentation of the streams, and um, the reintroduction of trout, whether it's uh, round trout or brook trout. Um, so that number is increased. And I don't know if you've got those numbers on, on handy, but maybe we'll have that on a future episode. But I do know it has increased, and that's always kind of fun to see. So uh, back to your question, number of fishable trout streams in Iowa. Oh, golly. I probably it's two digits, I'll say that. Yeah, I know it's going to be two digits. I'm going to say probably uh, it's going to be a lot more than 40 years ago, but I would say maybe 35. Not even close. Oh, that's way more. 77. Oh, man. 77 See, wow. That's awesome. That's pretty and cool. And honestly, they were talking about it. There's over 100 actual fishable trout streams, mm -hmm. but not all of them are documented. So, like, you could say, like, the Stone Creek, mm -hmm. the, the Cheok Creek, Silver Creek, Miner Creek, Mullen Creek. There's five right there that aren't documented on the sure. DNR's website. Well, yeah, that, that, that's another cool thing is because everybody's heard of Beak Creek. That was the first watershed project um, on a trout stream in Howard County back in the late 90s. They did that, and they, they stocked that. And that's a very... Uh, uh, popular place to go. It's really neat. I actually just walked it the other day um, with our wetland specialist Ben Kennan and we went back to where the actual spring on that is because that's one of those disappearing streams. There's no water above but then you get down to the bridge and you got a nice flow of water. But um, uh, yeah, the the uh, the number of trout streams have increased and that, that has a lot to say to speak for the amount of conservation that the farmers in Iowa have been doing and the work that the Iowa DNR fisheries have been doing in these watershed projects and just the focus on it. Um, because honestly, well, like Stone Creek, we had no clue that there were trout in there. We didn't even have an idea what the temperature was. I mean, when we went out there that first time, I'm like, okay, let's, <laughs> okay, this isn't really, doesn't look like much there. But um, like Hunter said, you know, we've done these fish shockings in, um, you know, four or five inches of water and here, there's a little trout coming up in uh, all those rocks so but so the more documentation that we're doing um, the more that we study these the more rascal assessments we do um, in identifying especially with these temperature monitors we're going to find these uh, jewels you know jewels in the prairie I mean mm -hmm. we've got this series of posters that they put out several several years ago and they called jewels of the prairie and uh, what they really need to do is put a jewels of the prairie with these trout um, on it also uh, especially the brook trout I mean that's just a cool thing and and like I said, it's a, it's a reflection on the quality of the stream, but the quality of stream is reflective upon what the upland treatments are. And um, I have mentioned that before. Um, like I said, my watershed had project had no uh, desire or interest, or not interest, but no, no plan to be uh, doing a lot of work in the stream itself. It was all upland practices that we were going to install to improve the water quality. But... A lot of the stuff is multi-purpose and um, the improvements have just been um, increasing with the filter strips and all that kind of stuff. So it is a testament to, um, you know, a lot of times people get down on the quality of water in Iowa. Uh, a lot of times we go to these watershed conferences and they'll have a session and talking about surveys they do of the, the people that live in the watershed. And they usually have kind of a negative uh, thought about what the quality of water is in Iowa, which, which there is a lot of room for improvement, but there are some really good success stories and uh, some really good work that's been going on and we do have these jewels mm -hmm. in the prairie and uh, really and it's just it's just it's a privilege to get to work with with the people and what's even cooler is um, 
Uh, I know when we go out and we like, you know, I, like Hunter said, it's you can listen to all the data that we collect from our monitoring and parameters and stuff. But when you're holding a fish and you can see that. But what's really enjoyable is uh, the landowners and seeing, you know, and they've been they've been pulling a few trout out um, fishing on their own property. But just the pride that the the uh, people have that have these stretches of cold water stream in their properties, which um, it's, it's it's just a just a, a great asset. And what we're doing is we're helping people help the land and help their streams, and uh, hopefully for many generations to come. And we'll keep those trout around, and hopefully we'll never have a forty-year absence like we did in the past. So. Yeah, awesome. Well, we're going to wind down here, and uh, before we sign off, I'm just going to give a mention. Um, next week, we'll have our first guest on on camera um, with Tim Sadler from Rikesview Farms, and um, we're still working. We're hopefully we can get um, his comrade uh, Isaac Hover on here as well um, and kind of talk about their operations and what they do um, and how uh, how Rikesview is, is helping families feed families is what their kind of model is. And so um, if you guys got any questions, send them on over to us that we can – um, present to them and kind of work through and we're just going to have some nice conversations and and kind of see uh, how they've been working and what they kind of do over there at Rikesview Farms. So uh, we're going to sign off here with episode six of Beyond the Dirt podcast.